On the Nonlinear Healing Podcast, we talk about all the aspects of healing. The beautiful parts and the painful parts, too. We acknowledge that healing is not linear. And there are many ups and downs in every person's story. And in fact, we celebrate the messy parts just as much as the pretty parts. This is Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. Welcome back to Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. I'm your host, you guessed it, Courtney Brooke. I am so glad that you are here with us for the second part of the first season. I have some really exciting guests coming up. Our very own Kara Austin Carnes from Mangata Holistic Studios will be on next week. I've got Reverend Dr. James Smith, whose episode will be airing today. I've got Mae Wagner from Rainy Day in May coming up. Taylor Pinkston, self-love queen. So many exciting episodes to be dropping. So first half of the season was bi-weekly simply because I was so super busy between my corporate job and the private practice stuff, but I'm full-time private practice now and I've got much more time on my hands, which means that you can expect episodes to be dropping weekly now through June. Now, I'm going to take a couple breaks here and there for Easter and Mother's Day, you know, that kind of stuff. But for the most part, you can tune in here every Monday for a new episode. So I am also going to be kind of re-recording my story. It's going to be like um, an updated version of my story. And that'll be a bonus episode coming up soon-ish. I think I'm probably going to do that one within the next month or so, but... Long story short, you know, I re-listened to that initial episode, the My Story episode, and I am just confused about what was happening with my voice, and it seemed so, like, meek and quiet, and if y'all haven't figured it out by now, I am certainly not either meek nor quiet, Um, so it was pretty interesting to re-listen to that first episode and be like, think I want to do that one again. But at any rate, I am so ready to jump into this week's episode. This is one of my very favorite interviews to date. Reverend Dr. James W. Smith was the youngest practicing African-American attorney in the state of North Carolina in the 1970s. Over the course of about 10 years, compulsive gambling led him to make a series of decisions that ultimately led to him being federally incarcerated for five years. Once released, he pursued an education in ministry and became pastor of the Historical Missionary Baptist Church in Durham County, North Carolina. I find his episode fascinating and inspiring. I haven't heard very many stories like this. I don't think I've heard, ever heard any story like this before. And I think it's just so incredible. So without further ado, take a listen to my interview with Reverend Dr. James W. Smith. Welcome to the Nonlinear Healing Podcast, Reverend Dr. James. 
Thank you. It's good to be with you today. I am so looking forward to learning more about you and your story. Um, I came across your profile and I immediately just thought, wow, this gentleman has quite a history and I can't wait for you to lead us through your life and, and tell us how you got to where you are today. Well, let me start. I grew up in a normal family uh, on a farm. Granddaddy owned about 500 acres of land. Uh, we had lots of uh, animals, everything from hogs, cows, pigs, whatever you name. We also had lots of crops, tobacco, corn, cotton, cucumber, you name it. Uh, and uh, I grew up in a normal family. Uh, lots of uncles, lots of aunts, lots of cousins. I'm an only child myself, the oldest of the cousins. Uh, we were not rich, but not uh, necessarily uh, at the bottom of the spectrum. Uh, we were kind of in between. Uh, my granddaddy uh, kind of made certain that we basically had everything that we, we needed. Uh, and so I grew up graduating from high school in Lewisburg. My mom moved to New York, so I would travel with her to New York. Uh, would travel to see her quite a bit on holidays in New York. And during the summers, I would spend a lot of time with my mom in New York. She went there to make sure that she could work and make more money than she could there on the farm. Although we had a, a farm, you know, it still wasn't all that great for all of her children to survive. So she left. So just as a reference point, where was your farm at? Where did you grow up? In Lewisburg, North Carolina. That's about uh, 35 miles outside of Raleigh, one uh, south of Raleigh. Uh, I always tell people it really was not really in the city of Lewisburg because we lived out about 10 miles out of the city in a little village that was called Molten. And we, the, the word is, and we kind of joke about it, it was so small until when you enter it, you were leaving it. So that's, <laughs> the, that's the kind of uh, place we, we live. I see. So Southern state. Mm -hmm. um, in what time period? We're talking about uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, that was way back. I graduated from high school in 63. Uh, went off to uh, uh, college and uh, uh, went uh, majored in business uh, commerce. And uh, at the end of my junior year, I decided that I would enter into a law school. And of course, uh, it would, I could go in on the combined program. So I graduated from law school in 1969. And of course, uh, also graduated from undergraduate school in 67. Uh, got my degrees, both a bachelor's of uh, science in commerce, and in 69, I received my JD. Uh, and of course, uh, from there, I began working a few places, 
passed the bar and started practicing law in my hometown in 1971. At that time, I was the first and only African-American lawyer practicing uh, in my hometown. And of course, I was the youngest African-American lawyer practicing in the state of North Carolina at that particular time. So I was, wow. I was moving on, doing well, things were going well, but I got off into gambling. And of course, uh, as a result of the gambling, kind of lost my focus. Uh, I lost some properties that I had accumulated. Wife and I uh, had, had separated because of my gambling. My partners, I first started off in Lewisburg. And of course, after I bought a partner in, we moved our main office to Henderson, North Carolina, which is about 19 miles from uh, Lewisburg. That's a little larger. And of course, we maintain a satellite office in Lewisburg. But um, my gambling got to the point where that all kind of fell apart after about nine years. And of course, I began to kind of start losing my focus. Gambling was taking hold of me. I lost, as I said before, lost properties. Uh, uh, wife and I uh, separated, eventually divorced. And of course, I lost it. Uh, after about 10 years of, of practicing law, I uh, went into bank and uh, robbed the bank. Uh, I, 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 I wish I could tell you why. <laughs> I just think I was trying to recoup and, and thought I could just get back to where I was. Uh, I realized many years later that that was almost impossible. Well, not almost, it was impossible. And of course, I, I pleaded guilty, received a 15-year sentence, uh, served five years, came out. I was on probation for 10 years, but because I did very well on probation, I was only on probation for two years, which was terminated. And of course, then uh, I, when I got out, I went to the halfway house. And from the halfway house, uh, I knew a lot of, still a lot of lawyers in the, in the state. I came to the halfway house in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, an attorney was at the courthouse when I went over and we talked and he gave me a job as a, as a uh, paralegal, uh, well, I guess you would call it a law clerk at that time. Mm -hmm. And of course, I, I worked with him for about six, six years. And, uh, you know, during that time, I, be, I well, I should go back just one step because after I committed the crime, they, I was uh, committed to Dorothea Dix Hospital for a six-week observation because they just couldn't understand how this could happen to an attorney. And so something had to be wrong. And so while I was at Dorothy Dix Hospital, you know, I just started reflecting on my life and uh, just trying to figure out how in the world all this happened to me. And uh, I just uh, came to the, uh, to the conclusion that, you know, it was just, uh, I thought I was a compulsive gambler and uh, but then uh, when I went back 
to Lewisburg out of the half out of the um, Miller Hospital. I didn't have a job. This was before I was went this before I was uh, pled guilty. Now this is in the interim. I didn't have a job, and so uh, one of my friends owned a service station. Worked with him for a short while. People in the community and former class came by. I worked with him for about three, uh, say maybe about uh, a month. And then I got another job with a politician who was a county commission, chairman of the county commission, who was on the supermarket, uh, which was the only thing going in Henderson at the time because there was no food line, no whole, no Kroger, none of those big chain. And so I worked behind the cashier uh, bagging groceries. And former clients would come in, uh, you know, family members would come in, friends. And of course, that's uh, part of my whole reflection, you know, coming to the point of developing what I felt that I didn't have, more humility, mm. more humility and all that. So, and, I, excuse me. Okay, go ahead on. Um, I, I would like to just pause for a moment okay. and reflect a little bit on that time period, because I think there are probably, of course, some deeper lessons there that the audience might benefit from. So okay. you're a successful lawyer. Mm-hmm. You were the youngest African-American lawyer in the state of North Carolina well-known, respected in your community. And over the course of about 10 years, it sounds like somehow gambling completely overtook your life and you lost everything. It sounds Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. for the most part. So I'm wondering how it was that gambling sort of started for you. Um, A lot of times I think that as humans, Um, We're very adaptable creatures. And I think that we sort of reach for whatever we have closest or whatever we know or see other people doing um, to sort of cope or deal. And I'm just wondering, like, where do you think it started? Where did you pick up on it? Well, uh, I had an uncle who uh, was a gambler. uh, And he was away every weekend. And this is when I was in, uh, I would say probably about the seventh, eighth, ninth grade on up. And uh, he would always ask me to come over and stay with his wife and he had a, one one child at the time uh, because he was, he was gone. And so I would go over and stay with, with her. And while over there, I mean, she would, uh, be inviting friends over and we play some talks or what we call pity pat and and uh you know always my mom always sent me uh some little change so I had weekly change uh all the time <clears throat> and so we'll play for a pity maybe a nickel and so that's how I kind of got started so the the it was but that was just small time I never thought about it anymore until I started working, <clears throat> excuse me, until I, I got out of law school uh, and I worked with uh, the 
a law firm for a short while before passing the bar. And uh, I noticed that every Wednesday, uh, basically they were had left the office. And I asked the secretary one time, I said, where did where everybody go? She said, they're just right across the street playing cards. I said, oh, okay. And so one Wednesday, I was talking with them, and they said, come on over. We can come on over, and you can look at, uh, check with us, see us. And they were playing poker. And it was, uh, I mean, everybody was having such a great fun. I mean, they were just enjoying themselves. And uh, I didn't know how to play poker. I thought I knew how to play almost every other kind of of a card game because of playing with my my uh, uh, uncle's wife. But I, I, they taught me the game. I learned the game. And, who well, it was just a fun game. And uh, I don't want to say that I lost all the time because I thought I was pretty good. I, lost, I won lots of money uh, playing poker. But I ended up, in the end, losing more money than I, I won. So that's how I kind of got into it. And, then it, and I, I, I could get up. When I won, if I lost, I could get up. I knew, you know, as those say, say I knew when to hold, I knew when to fold. But eventually it became uh, more like, I don't know, it was just uh, something that just kind of got into the system. It, mm. was hard, it was hard to leave it. I was enjoying it so much. I would borrow additional money from the lawyers and, because we were playing with all professional people, lawyers, doctors, and barbers, and what have you, and everybody would loan people money. So if I had an extra two or three hundred dollars, they could get it from me. If they had an extra two, three hundred dollars, I could get it from them. So we would had no problem along that line. And and of course, I just fell so deeply in love with it until I just stopped that getting up that I used to do when mm. I won or when I lost, it no longer was there. It was just like, I just felt like I had to play. So I would borrow and sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't. And yeah. losing it was just gradual. It wasn't like overnight, you know, that lose this and you wake up and you don't have anything, but it was a gradual point. You know, you, you, first of all, you, you find yourself borrowing money from the shock on the street. And then the next thing you know, you done, uh, can't borrow any more money, so you sell a piece of property. Uh, and the next thing you know, you know, you you are kind of down to your last grip and you don't have anything. And then you kind of lose it. Yeah. Your focus go. And, and I think that is how most addictions start, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times it kind of starts off as this culturally acceptable thing. So in this situation, it's like everybody got together on, on Wednesdays. Um, I'm assuming this is probably early 70s, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so early 70s, right. Mm -hmm. So everybody's sitting around a table, probably chain smoking cigarettes with, mm -hmm. you know, their whiskey and, mm -hmm. and laughing, having a good time. And it's just the normal thing to do. Nobody That's even questions it. it. And then I think over time, what happens is that for some of us, and I think especially for those of us who have stressful jobs, which I'm assuming being a lawyer is a rather stressful job, you know, it becomes 
the only thing that makes us feel good anymore. I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, it was like I couldn't wait for uh, when I was start practicing. I couldn't wait for Friday to get up to, to come. It was like, boy, I, I'm ready to get out of here. Five o'clock come or six o'clock come, I was gone. And we had a kind of a circle, you know, uh, from one counter to the other one. And we had uh, a barber who was living in Wilson. Somebody else was living in, in Durham. Somebody else was living in Warrington. And we just went from these circles every weekend. And the person would host. And like you say, here was the drinks. Uh, the, the spouse or girlfriend would would have the the uh, kitchen filled with chicken and barbecue and everything else you want to eat. And if you got sleepy, you just lay down on the couch, take your nap. And when you know anything, the whole weekend was gone. You know, and you get up early Monday morning, know you got to go to the, to the office or you got to go to court. And you press your way there. Uh, that's what was, was kind of becoming a routine. Yes. And once it starts to become that routine, we don't even think about it anymore. It becomes a habit that seems so normalized. But at some point, at some point, it got completely out of control. And little by little, the other things that you might've loved and care about, like your wife and your homes and, and all of that were overtaken by, by the gambling. And it even led you to a point where you robbed a bank, right? Right. So tell me about that. Um, I I'm just curious, like, even if you want to maybe like walk us through, any of the precursors to that? What brought you to that moment where it seemed like the only option was to rob a bank? Well, um, when I first started practicing law, I had a, uh, there was a gentleman right after I got married who had a uh, history and uh, he told me, he said, you know, you need something for protection. I just built my, my home. Uh, he said, I got a, a, a little, well, uh, one of the smaller type pistols. Uh, I bought it from him. That was now, note, this is in 71. Uh, I, bought it, I bought it from him. And of course, I think I went out, maybe tried to shoot it, uh, maybe once or twice, because I just got it, didn't know anything about firearms. And it laid in my drawer. From then on, never touched it again. It was just there. So uh, after coming forward now to the question asked, I don't know. I was just in my bed at night, and I just saw my whole life leaving. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, it looks like I was just uh, everything was gone. Uh, I could see the law practice leaving me. I saw everything just gone and. And uh, I just woke up early that morning, reached over in the drawer and got the pistol and went to my office. Now, at this time, the, my former partners and I, we are separated, so I had my own office. I went to my office, sat in my chair, and I actually was contemplating uh, taking my own life. And uh, 
I I guess it was the Lord. Or I you know I, I I don't know exactly. I can't put my fingers on it. But anyway, my mom came into my mind, and I'm an only child, and I was my mom was living with me at the time because she came down after I stopped practicing law at the state, and um, uh, I abandoned that idea because I was thinking about her and I didn't want to hurt her. So I got in my in my car and I started just riding around in the city of of uh, Henderson, and I eventually. Got on 85, and we're just riding south on 85. Uh, a couple of times, my mind thought about just stopping right in front of a big transfer truck. And, uh, you know, I had practice law, so I knew that if it hit me in the back, and I had a good lawsuit, and, of course, that would be the money that I would need. So I just, you know, uh, well, everything was running through my mind. I, and um, but I then thought about us. I was, I was okay if it just took my life. But then I thought about it might make me maimed, and I didn't want to be maimed for the rest of my life. So that kind of went away, and I'm still driving. But, but I'm not thinking rationally. And I, when I knew anything, I had driven into a city of Oxford, and. Uh, and I was hungry because I hadn't eaten anything because I just rushed out the house that morning. And uh, I stopped at a restaurant and I had me some little breakfast. But I'm wondering, I wasn't really eating that well. And when I looked out of the uh, window at the restaurant, I saw the, at the time, it was CCB. That would be SunTrust uh, Bank. But at the time, it was CCB Bank. And my mind just started wondering, yeah, this is just what happened. My mind started wondering, oh, man, if I could just get me uh, $50,000, $100,000, I could pay off these debts, and I could just go back and, and practice law like nothing happened. That just kept running through my mind. It kept running through my mind. And uh, a couple of lawyers came in who knew me, who's having breakfast, and they talked to me. Uh, but I guess they could tell that I won't all all to it because you know some of them told me afterwards when I I started working as a as a sponsor of CLE you know they they saw me afterwards but I then just got in my car started riding around in Oxford and then it just said I or something just hit me and said oh, shoot get caught or not and I just pulled right up to the front of the door of the bank ran in. Um, uh, I uh, I had a uh, you know I was an avid tennis player, so I had uh, what you call the tennis vibe, whatever you call it. And so I just pulled that down on on my on my head and uh, ran in. I say, stick up, give me your money, and they uh, threw a bag of money over. I grabbed it, ran, threw it in the back seat of the car. And took off. Now the interesting story of behind this that 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 I start sharing with the lawyers when I was doing CLE is is that I had only gotten about mm, less than a, maybe half a mile from the, the bank when I got stopped. And I got stopped. Uh, note that I had run now 
and uh, uh, there's so much to tell. So it's, it's, it's a long story because I had run for district court judge in 1976, which was about uh, four years prior to all of this happening. I was well known in the in the in the uh, five county area, and so the the gentleman who stopped me was a, a police officer in Oxford. He knew me, and uh, I had slumped over on the seat, and he asked me what was wrong. I told him I said I don't know, just not feeling well, and he he said uh, okay then you know just. Go ahead on, take take your time then, go ahead on. He let me go. And uh then I I went about another half a mile. I got stopped by a highway patrol and uh, I just got out of the car when he came because I just knew that was it. Went to the back of the car, had my hands up, and uh, he stayed in the in his car for a while looking. And uh it was later that I tried to figure out. Uh, what he may have been doing, checking my license. I was doing so bad at that time until uh, I didn't even uh, have insurance. I couldn't even get insurance on my car. Uh, my uncle-in-law got insurance for me, so the car that I was driving was registered in his name. And so I thought later that they may have thought I would and I was driving, uh, you know, stolen car. But then when he realized who I was, and he talked to me, he just told me, he said, okay, go ahead on. And so he let me go. And so it was after then that I just realized this is it. You know, uh, they nosed me. I went straight to my former partner's office, and I just told him what happened. The secretary what happened. She couldn't believe it. Nobody could believe it. My former partner was in D.C. at the time, and so she called the other lawyers that we do, one from Warren, and he had it straight up. And by the time he got there, they had called uh, one of, another one of my friends who was a doctor, came over to examine me. And, of course, uh, after we talked for a while, a swarm of police, of uh, law enforcement officers pulled up into the back of the yard. Uh, and of course, my uh, lawyer uh, friend went out, told him that I was in there, and that I was prepared to turn myself in. So that's that's what happened. And wow! So you're pulled over twice. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them kind of connect the dots, or at least don't arrest you in that right. moment. Mm-hmm. But your conscience was heavy, and mm-hmm. you you went to somebody you trusted. Um, your secretary and confessed in that mm-hmm. moment to what had mm-hmm. happened mm-hmm. and everybody's in shock. They don't understand it. You don't understand it. And you mentioned that you were even taken to a, a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. For several weeks or six weeks, you said. Six weeks. So was uh, that- I, I was uh, the following day, uh, they, uh, the, the district attorney, and all of the lawyers in Oxford, everybody was at the the manager's office when I got there. It was such a shock. You know, I'm well known in the area. So all the lawyers knew me. And so they just came on to the to the manager's office. They put me on a one hundred thousand dollar bond. Uh my the bondsman who I do well, who I play poker with, uh wanted to to 
to uh, try to stand the bond. But my lawyer said, well, let's wait until we have a hearing on tomorrow. So they talked with the district attorney and he agreed to have a hearing to determine if I was mentally capable of standing trial. And that's how the judge, who I also knew very well, uh, a very good friend of my whole family in Lewisburg, I'm sitting before him. Uh, and of course, you know the feeling I must, I must have had. And uh, he uh, made an order to send me to Dorothy Dix Mental Hospital for a six week observation. And I stayed there uh, about three weeks. But those three weeks was, I mean, I just reflected. I mean, it was just, uh, that's when I really, I came to the realization, you know, of trying to figure my life out, uh, what went wrong, uh, you know, my, my, my faith kicked in. You know, my mom was very, very uh, religious. My whole family was, my granddaddy was a, a Baptist preacher. Uh, and I just start praying, asking you know, for forgiveness and asking the Lord to help me in this situation. And it was in that moment that uh, I just, I don't know how, people ask me now uh, how I did it, but I just say it's over. You know, I didn't, I used to we would take a drink at the, at the places. No more, I just said no more of that no more gambling everything was it so when i went back to uh henderson after the three weeks because i called my uh my lawyer they just tell him say, i say I, I i just need to get out of here uh whatever happens you know I, i'm gonna deal with it i gotta face it and so i think he went to the judge and they you know called up and so they released me i went back to henderson and of course, that's when they stood my bond and I I, I got out on a $10,000 bond. It reduced it to $10,000. I got out. And of course, the first thing that my uh, uh, former secretaries and my friends wanted to do was to uh, have me to come over to the office and have a couple of drinks. And, you know, we were just going to celebrate the fact that I was out. They thought I was doing okay. And uh, when I got there, I said, no, I don't want anything. And they couldn't believe it. I said, no, I don't, I don't want anything. My whole life had just made a, a tremendous turn. I had no fear of going to prison. You know, I said, well, I got to get it behind me. And because I know that this is uh, something I got to deal with. And that's what I did. Wow. Wow. So in that moment of darkness, you have this realization that this is not the life that you want. Mm -hmm. This is not the man you want to be. And even faced immediately with the temptation of kind of just going right back to those old habits, you're able to sort of stand your ground and, and say, look, this isn't, this isn't who I am. This isn't what I want to do anymore. That's exactly what I did. Exactly yeah. what I did. I, even to the point that I was ready to uh, face whatever consequences came upon me. I wanted to get it over, get behind me. Uh, and I didn't, 
I need to share this with you because this would probably be hard for you to believe. But during the, 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 I got out, I think it was somewhere around in May, let me see, I'm trying to get back to dates, July. I got out somewhere around about the last part of July and I didn't go to court till in January. So I was out for about six months. But during that six months, when I was out on bond, uh, you know, the Lord just started working with me. And uh, I just uh, began to feel a, uh, to be a different person. I felt that he was calling me, to, you know, to ministry. And I went and talked to my um, uh, pastor at the time. And uh, he talked with me. And I told him that I felt the call, you know, to, to, to preach. And uh, he said to me, uh, well, if you feel the call, you know, that I, nothing I can do about that, you know. Uh, and I said, but I don't know if I want to to ex uh, uh, preach my initial sermon now. I think I'd rather just wait until I get out and then do it. And he told me, he said, well, now, if the Lord has called you, you might want to go out on and do it now. He might have something for you to do while you're in prison, you know. Uh, and that's what I did. So you, this is the interesting part that you will have a hard time believing. And maybe you won't, but uh, he uh, set up the time for me to preach my initial sermon on that first Sunday in January, 19, I always will remember this, 1982. And of course, that Monday, I went to court and I received a 15-year prison sentence. But I had already preached my initial sermon. And when I got in prison, I was fine. I never worried about a thing. I It was everything worked perfectly. Uh, if you could, could contact the prison officials and everything, they would probably tell you that I had more uh, coming to me and was able to do more than probably any other inmate they had there. I, I, I was able to get out. Twice, I went to prison fellowship seminars in Stallstown, Pennsylvania. I went to another prison fellowships uh, seminar in D.C. And one of them, I even traveled by myself. They allowed wow. me to leave and fly and come back. And But the chaplains wouldn't allow me to talk about it to anybody else because they didn't want the inmates to know that I was getting these, you know, these all these privileges. But mm. that was that was that was my life. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so me. even before sort of dealing with the consequences of what had happened, you were stepping into the role of preaching and sharing your message and sharing your lessons. And sounds like you were just an upstanding prisoner, right? Like you were or an inmate, I'd rather, I think, that you really were able to grow in a way that most people probably wouldn't be able to do oh, under yeah. those circumstances. So you go, you serve five years. I'm assuming you were released for good behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and then you mentioned a halfway house and, and some jobs, maybe as a paralegal and things along that line. Mm -hmm. Well, when I got out, uh, uh, they from from the federal correction institution in Ashland, where I went 
after I received the prison, well, I went through Butner and then to uh, Ashland, Kentucky. But then in Ashland, Kentucky, I spent about four years because I was on model prison. And uh, the last year, they sent me to the camp in Petersburg. Stating at the camp in Petersburg had always the best jobs. <laughs> and of course, from Petersburg, I went to the halfway house in Durham. And it was at the halfway house in Durham when I uh, went to the courthouse because uh, you had to have a job. I went to the courthouse the following day after I got there and saw a, a lawyer, very good lawyer in, in Durham. And I just talked to him and he told me, because, you know, they knew me. He said, well, come by the office tomorrow. And I went by his office and he gave me a job just like that. You know, didn't ask me a whole lot of questions. Didn't even talk about all of what, what I went through and all that stuff. He just gave me a job. And uh, he's deceased now, but it was something I always remember uh, with no strings attached. Didn't pay me a whole lot of money. And I tell this all the time when I'm when I talk to lawyers, um, I got two hundred dollars a week. That's that's what I got paid. It did not bother me. I was staying at the halfway house. All I wanted to do was have a job. And of course, uh, the following year, he raised it to uh, gave me another fifty dollars, and uh, that I worked for him for about six years for two hundred. $50 a week. was just as happy as I could be. I had no house payment. I had nothing. Uh, and uh, then, you know, during that time, I also applied to go to seminary. And uh, I applied over to Southeastern Theological Seminary in uh, Wake Forest. Uh, and of course, uh, they denied me the first time. You know, I guess to looked at my background and, but I didn't let that stop me. I, I, cause I knew why that I figured out why I thought they may have denied me cause I couldn't have been anything else. So I applied during the next semester and the next semester they accepted me. And of course I, I uh, went to seminary and uh, I stayed, I went off and on because during that time, I, I got married a second time. I got married uh, to my present wife in uh, 1990. So we've been married now for, uh, what, 32? Yeah, 32 years. Uh, and so, and she had two uh, young kids because her first husband was a minister and he had passed with a heart attack uh, from his church. And, uh, we, you know, uh, then I started kind of going part time all the way up until the last year I was getting ready to uh, uh, graduate and it did a hardship. So, you know, doing that working and everything. So I, I transferred my credits to an online course and I ended up getting my master's of identity and I kept on uh, and got my doctor of ministry. In, the, in between that time, after one uh, year after I was married, uh, the church in Durham called me as pastor. Uh, traditional Missionary Baptist Church at the time, we had about uh, maybe about 200 members, about 100 active members. 
And of course, I stayed there for 32 years. Stayed there just, I just retired at the end of last year, uh, December 31st. Uh, so I've been retired now, but about a, a, maybe not quite a month. Wow. Well, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. And that is quite a chorus. Um, as as a pastor for 32 years, I mean, how did the church shape and grow with you as their leader? And then how did you grow as a leader? Well, I the one thing that I always wanted to do, and I share this with my church family, uh, I never held anything back. I thought that honesty was always the best policy. Uh, and so I told them that, you know, I said that uh, I am going to be the best pastor I could possibly be. Uh, I'll always be upfront and honest with you. I say, and of course, and and even in my messages, you know, I would, I could uh, sum up some of them just by sharing what I went through and it was always touching. Uh, and, and, uh, I can say right now that, uh, I left the church in good graces, you know, uh, uh, I retired on my own, no forcing. I, and if I felt like I needed to go back right now, I think they would get, call me back, but that's, that's just the, the way I was. And of course I didn't keep any secrets, you know, it's just that I wanted to just be upfront, honest, and uh, allow the Lord to use me in, in the way that I felt called to do. How incredible. That is just such a journey to come from that place of darkness and despair and having lost everything and to have grown into the man that you are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the different tools or strategies, the things that you did along your journey that helped you to arrive where you are today? Well, one of the things that I did was I started a, I guess it was, would you call it a journal? Journal, maybe so. I started for therapy while I was confined. Uh, just dealing with a journal every day, every day, writing uh, about what happened, how it happened, and, and you know, the whole concept uh, from uh, my uh, growing up law practice, uh, uh, the gambling, confinement, and, and uh, of course, I ended it up after I got out. But that helped me, the kind of just the, the therapy part of it. Uh, I had a couple of counseling sessions uh, when I was out on, uh, when I first left the middle hospital, I kept a couple of counseling sessions. Uh, that helped me to kind of stay focused. Um, and of course, uh, obviously just uh, my faith was, I would think, was the biggest aspect of my life. And let me just say this, because I think it's important for people to hear this. Um, I 
thought I was a compulsive gambler. And in my first book that I wrote, that's what I said. You know, I talked about it. I had become a compulsive gambler when I lost everything. But uh, I, after a while, I, I uh, for 11 years, I, the North Carolina State Bar allowed me to uh, become a sponsor of continuing legal education. And I went around the whole state of North Carolina uh, teaching uh, mental health and uh, uh, ethics and mental health and substance abuse. And of course, it was it was good for me. But during that process, in, in between this time, somewhere, I can't, don't remember exactly where, there was a uh, Gambling Anonymous group over in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is about 10, 15 miles from Durham. And so I called the, the director and asked him if I could come over and talk with the, the uh, uh, guys uh, because I had, you know, uh, gone through the same thing. I'd been a gambler, what have you. And he asked me the question. He said, are you uh, still a compulsive gambler? And I told him no. And I said, no, I'm not. And uh, he said, well, I don't know if the guys would would appreciate hearing from you then. Because that I, the theory was, once a gambler, kind of like alcoholism, once a, a a gambler, always a gambler. But when I told him I wasn't, I started thinking about it. And then I I began to, uh, this past, the, the, the manuscript that, that I had written, the journal at first, that turned into a manuscript, uh, published probably about 15 years ago. Uh, but last year, about maybe within the last two years, I started reflecting again and uh, I, I did what I call a self-evaluation of my, of my life. And uh, it was the second edition of my book. And what I, I, I came to realize that I may not have actually been a compulsive gambler, that my problem may have been more of, I was afraid of failure, afraid of to fail. And uh, I concluded that it was probably that more than being a compulsive gambler, especially after he said that to me. Uh, now, I know that, you know, uh, the Lord can do anything and take all of that away from me. And, and that could have happened too. So I had all these things that I was dealing with. But that's what I kind of concluded in my self-evaluation. And what a powerful insight that can really only come in those moments of reflection. And journaling, writing, those are such wonderful methods of being able to think objectively about situations and being able to critically think and assess what is really going on here. Mm -hmm. So I think that is an incredible conclusion to have drawn. Um, because, you know, I, I very much believe that people are not naturally addicted to things. I think that people um, 
seek whatever they have, whatever's closest to them. For some people, it might be gambling. For other people, it might be alcohol. It could be sex addiction. It could be um, all kinds of different things. It could be shopping, right? Um, and it really boils down to what is it that I'm looking for? Like, what am I seeking here? Um, and I feel like the basis of all wellness really does come from spirituality. And I think that that is where we start to realize like I'm part of something greater. There's something bigger happening here. And that's where we can find peace from that incessant need or that seeking um, that we might have. So fear of failure, it certainly influences people a lot more, I think, than they realize. Mm -hmm. Um, So Dr. Reverend James, if people want to follow you, if they want to purchase your book, Um, Tell us a little bit more about how they might be able to work with you or um, follow you on your journey. Well, uh, a couple of things. Number one, um, once I decided that I was going to retire, I wanted to continue my ministry uh, by doing something I thought would help people. And uh, I was excited to accept, uh, you know, uh, I was excited that you accepted me to appear on your your, uh, podcast. Uh, but I wanted to do something uh, likewise, so I I uh, started a podcast entitled "Deal by Me Podcast," uh, and uh, titled it "Tell Us Your Story." And I wanted this to uh, be encouraging, inspiring, and uh, transforming, uh, and it was a way of continuing my ministry. So I've been doing that now for about. Uh, six months, and it's going very, very well. So uh, I know that the the Lord is blessing me uh, in that uh, area. The other, uh, and so people can check uh, the, wherever they get the podcast and look for Deal By Me podcast and uh, pull up any of the podcasts uh, that I've done. The other uh, thing uh, is, I have a website where they can purchase my books. That's dealbyme.com uh, uh, website, www.dealbyme.com. And they can purchase my books from the website. And of course, I will autograph it. Uh, but if they don't go to my website, they can always get uh, all of my books. I have like, three published books from uh, amazon.com and any other the bookstores. Uh, we'll be able to find them and you can purchase them. Uh, so that's uh, where I am. Any other, all other information about me can basically be found on my website. Uh, my bio, my bio, I do church conflict workshops. I do all kinds of seminars. Uh, because of my legal background, uh, I've served as moderator, moderators for the General Baptist State Convention. All of that I've done since I've been out. Uh, I've served as a uh, uh, at four years in that capacity. I also served, did 11 years with the North Carolina State Bar as a sponsor of continuing legal education, where I dealt with and taught ethics, no help, and substance abuse. All of that I've done since I have been out of prison. So I've been blessed. And uh, if people want to know more about me, they can always go to the website and get all of this information. Uh, my my seminars that I do, 
uh, and what I do tomorrow, uh, and everything is right there. And I want to just thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share with you this morning. Well, I want to thank you for your authenticity and your willingness to share your story. Um, I, I find it so incredibly inspiring, and I know my listeners will too. So thank you, um, Reverend Dr. James W. Smith. <laughs> thank you very much. Wow, you guys. I know I cannot be the only one who was just completely floored by that interview. I also want to take a moment here to just talk about faith a little bit more. So I want to acknowledge the good and the bad that can come along with it. So if you know my story, you all know that I grew up in a very, very strict Christian household. Um, I had a bit of a mixed experience. There was good and bad about it. But clearly in this story... Reverend Dr. James was able to use his faith to help guide him through very difficult and challenging life circumstances. So my practice currently, um, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, which means that I see the validity in all religions. I think most important for anybody is to be able to find some connection with something bigger than themselves. And I think that that can be God or Jesus. Um, for other people, you know, it might be a goddess or, you know, a certain deity. Um, but for others, maybe they don't identify with that at all. And it's more of this feeling of connectedness to the world or to the universe. You know, you don't have to necessarily believe in a higher power. You can still look around you and believe in nature and in what you see right in front of you. So I truly believe that humans are meant to practice in many different ways because we're very diverse and I think it's a beautiful thing. And, um, you know, I grew up as a Baptist. We were fundamentalists and, um, you know, I still do have a heart for that specific um, sector of religion and I think that it can help a lot of people and also bearing in mind that there can be harm done when we force religion on people or we judge people because of our religious beliefs. Um, it's important that we are understanding and compassionate towards all persons no matter how they practice. So Thank you all for tuning in to Nonlinear Healing this week. I am so blessed for each and every one of you who decide to listen to this podcast. Help me get the word out. You can help this podcast by sharing this episode with others, by leaving us a review. It would mean so much. And again, I appreciate you and I am so grateful for each and every one of you. And I'll see you next time on Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke.